Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can open your Bibles to chapter 25 and 26 of Acts. We're going to try to cover two chapters this morning, so hold on to your seats. It's going to be a fun ride as we draw near to our adventure in Acts coming to a conclusion. Um, As you're turning there, some of you may have never actually heard my personal testimony. You may never have heard how I got saved. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. So as a child, I experienced everything that a Southern Baptist kid growing up in Texas could experience. RAs, vacation Bible school, Sunday school, choir practice. I thought it was called chiropractor. I never knew the difference between chiropractor and choir practice. But my, my parents were always going to choir practice. And my dad went to the chiropractor, so it kind of gave me, got me confused there. Um, Mission Friends, Sunday School, VBS, potlucks. I think I've been to every Baptist potluck there is known to man and everything in between. But there were those key Sunday School teachers that really invested in me. Now, a lot of times as a pastor's kid, sometimes you get overlooked in church because everybody just assumes you're being taught at home, and that was the case. My parents taught me the gospel. My parents raised me in, in church, but there were some key Sunday school teachers that really invested in me. They, they told me about Jesus. They told me about the gospel. They laid the claims of Christ out before me, and so I'm so thankful for those Sunday school teachers. And just a side note, if you work with our children here at Emmanuel Baptist Church or with our youth, never think that you're doing something in vain. God can use you to mightily impact the children and youth that you minister to. And so on a Sunday night in December of 1979, on the edge of my bed, I began weeping that night, began crying. I was under strong conviction. And I knew in that moment that if I were to die, I would spend eternity in hell without Jesus. And my parents came into the room and they they wondered what was going on. And I said, Mom and Dad, I I think I'm going to hell. I think that I need salvation And so my parents, they did not manipulate me. They did not pray the prayer for me. They simply laid the claims of Jesus Christ out there and they presented with me the gospel. And it was in that moment that the Holy Spirit came and opened my eyes as an eight-year-old boy to the truth of the gospel and I prayed to receive Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior that very night. Now, it wasn't earth-shattering. I didn't see any blinding light. There was no audible voice. I wasn't knocked off the edge of my bed. It was just the Holy Spirit invading my heart with strong conviction of sin, showing me my need for a Savior. And sometimes, growing up in a Christian home, the son of a pastor with not a very dramatic testimony, I struggle sometimes that I don't have that dramatic testimony. I mean, as an eight-year-old kid, I wasn't a bank robber. I wasn't part of the mafia. I didn't knock off old women. I didn't do anything. I didn't gamble. I wasn't hanging out with prostitutes, and I wasn't a drug addict. And so sometimes I think, man, I don't have this dramatic testimony because my life wasn't so bad before I came to know Christ. 
And I'm thankful that God saved me at an early age because he prevented me from going down that path. And, and maybe some of you have the same struggle. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? I don't really remember that exact moment that I was saved. I've grown up in the church and, and my testimony's not dramatic. Or some of you may have dramatic testimonies. God saved me out of something dramatic. And so we think about our personal testimonies. And so the power is not in your testimony so much. The power is in the gospel of Christ and him working in your life. So here's the question for this morning. Here's where we're going. Here's where we're going to camp out when we look at the life of Paul. How can God demonstrate his power through your personal testimony? And how can you have confidence in the power of the gospel? In the power of the gospel. Now, now I don't, wanna, I don't want you to, to raise your hands because all of us would raise our hands here. And if you're, if you're not raising your hands, then, then I want to come talk to you after the service. How many of you struggle sharing your faith with other people? How many of you sometimes clam up? Yeah, thanks for raising your hands. How many of you clam up when it comes to opening your mouth? You, you don't know what to say. You're at a loss. You you know you need to say something. You know what the gospel is, and so you're fearful. What are people going to think of me? Will I lose my friends? Maybe sometimes we're just so busy we don't even think about it. And so my purpose this morning is not to lay a guilt trip on you. I could come down and say, you need to witness. Let's all go home. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lay a guilt trip on you. What I hope to do this morning is to show you from the the passage of Scripture, Paul, and I want it to be an encouragement to you, and I also want it to be an equipping to you. How How can you share your faith? How can God use your personal testimony and the power of the gospel to bring about the salvation of lost people through you opening your mouth? So I want this to be practical. I want you to leave this morning with some some tools of how can I share my faith? Because let's just face it, as I was praying this week and getting prepared for this message, I'll be the first to admit I'm not that good at sharing my faith. And you may be shocked to think that a pastor struggles with sharing his faith. It's easy when I stand up here to preach. But I have next-door neighbors that don't know Jesus, and sometimes it's harder to share with them. I've got family members that aren't believers, and sometimes it's hard to share with them. So I'll be the first in line this morning to tell you that when it comes to sharing my faith, I have not arrived. So we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. Now, basically, we're going to kind of fly through chapter 25, because chapter 25 is Paul's second trial against this guy named Festus, which is really not anything new. There's some, there's some things new in there. But then he goes before King Agrippa for his, his third trial. So let's just dive into both of these chapters this morning, asking the question, how, how can we have confidence in the power of the gospel? How can God use your personal testimony to bring about his power in the lives of people that don't know Jesus? So let's, let's look at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed many, or stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. 
Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you've appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Now, last week, Paul was in prison for two years Felix was the governor. Felix was a coward. Felix didn't release Paul. And so Festus is the new governor, finds Paul there um, awaiting trial. He's in prison. And, And after two whole years, these Jewish leaders still want to wait in ambush to kill Paul. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, they made a vow that they would not eat or drink until Paul was killed. Now, I'm sure they didn't wait two years for that vow to be fulfilled. But these guys are wanting to still, after two years of being in prison, kill Paul. And Paul basically says, guys, we've been through this time and time again. You have no proof. You have no, 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 no witnesses to substantiate your, your, your accusations. And so Felix, just like um, Festus and Felix, both wanted to do the Jews a favor, and so... Basically, Festus becomes a coward and says, let me take you down to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem. I know I'm not going to get a fair trial there. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to go all the way up to Caesar. And and the reason that Paul says, I want to go to Caesar, is because where's Caesar located? In Rome. Remember what Jesus said to Paul a few weeks ago? Go back to chapter 23. Look at verse 11. What did Jesus say to Paul when he was in prison the first time? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul knew that his ultimate destination was Rome, and then he needed to go before Caesar himself in order to appeal his case. And so what happens as we keep reading here, let's look at verse 13. When some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, I'm not going to keep reading here. I just want to give you a little bit of information about Agrippa and his quote-unquote wife. We'll get to that in just a moment. This is Paul's third trial. He goes before King Agrippa. We thought last week Felix and Drusilla were sexually immoral. This king's got him beat. He's Herod Agrippa. Now, does that name Herod bring anything to your memory? Herod had a line of kings that were very against God's people. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was the one that tried to destroy baby Jesus. That's why they had to go down to Egypt. His uncle Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. His dad, Agrippa I, is the one who killed James with the sword. And so here you have Herod and this long line of Herodian kings standing against God's people. He comes in and he's got his wife, Bernice. Now, if you know anything about his, I'm using quotation marks for those listening online. Sometimes you don't, really, you don't see that. Bernice was his sister. He had an incestuous relationship with his sister, Okay, so here's a Jewish king that's living with his sister in an incestuous relationship. Now, she tried to diffuse some rumors by marrying another king, 
but she did not really get along with that king, so she went back to her brother and basically lived in an incestuous relationship. So you, here you have a wicked king and his sister living in sin, and Paul goes before them for his third trial. And Festus is basically passing the buck and saying, I don't find anything wrong with Paul, but let's just kind of bring the king in here to, 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 to mix things up. So let's go down to verse 23. Verse 23 of chapter 25. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write about to him, Lord, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So here's Paul's third trial. Agrippa and his sister-slash-wife enter with great pomp, great circumstance. They have their military entourage, and here comes Paul to give his defense. Now, in the past, what did Paul do? When Paul went before a, a, a court, he basically laid forth his innocence. He gave all the reasons why he was innocent, saying, bring in your accusers. Paul shifts gears here. This is his last time to appeal before a leader before he goes off to Jerusalem or before he goes off to Rome. And so what he's going to do is he's not necessarily going to give a defense. He's going to share his personal testimony. He's going to share his personal testimony with this king and he's going to share the gospel. And so we have here Paul standing trial, but he uses it as an opportunity to share his testimony. And so from chapter 26, I want us to see 7 Seven issues this morning related to the sharing of the gospel. How do you share the gospel? What components are related to sharing the gospel? What do we need to understand about witnessing, what evangelism, whatever word you want to use, telling another person that doesn't know Jesus about Jesus? What are these seven things? Now, before we move into chapter 26, I want to give you numbers one and two. Here's number one that we need to understand before we even begin to share the gospel, and that is this. God and his providence is sovereignly going to orchestrate and maneuver behind the scenes to bring events into your life to get you to the right people. There's a, those are called divine moments. You don't live in your neighborhood as an accident. You are not at your workplace as an accident. God has arranged you to have a sphere of influence where you can share the gospel with those he brings in your place. And so we need to realize that God orchestrates divine moments. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, we, we find an interesting Greek word. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. I think the King James says, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Make the best use of the time. It's the Greek word kairos. Kairos means a God-appointed moment in time that he has orchestrated for you to take advantage of. Seize the moment and the time that God has given you. So God has given you these moments these divine appointments. 
and you are to make the most of every opportunity to take advantage of what God is doing to bring you into contact with lost people. So first of all, God's behind the scenes getting you into situations where you can exactly open your mouth and share the gospel. But secondly, we need to be praying that our eyes are open to this because sometimes God does this and we're just blind to it. We don't recognize it. We don't walk into those opportunities. We need to be praying for sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that he'll, he'll give us um, a, a prompting or he'll give us an opportunity to, to, to share, to build relationships with those around us. In Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 4, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul says, pray for an open door. We need to be praying for open doors. When God opens a door, we need to walk through it. So we need to be praying for open doors, doors of opportunities to share the gospel. So number one, God God has got you where he's got you for a purpose. He's bringing people into your life for a purpose. You need to be praying for sensitivity that God will will give you the, the insight, the wisdom to be able to speak up when those times are appropriate. And it goes without saying that we need to also just open our mouths when those opportunities happen. Now, let's continue reading. Acts chapter 26. 1 through 11. Acts chapter 26, 1 through 11. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So here's the third thing in relationship to sharing the gospel. First of all, God's behind the scenes giving you opportunities. Number two, pray for those opportunities. But number three, share your life before you met Christ. That's what Paul does. He shares what his life was like before he met Christ. He says, listen, I was a religious zealot. I was a Pharisee. I thought I was doing things religious, but actually I was a raging animal persecuting These Christians, I was a sinner. I did things opposed to God. I was a violent man. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 13-16. Paul says, though formally, formally, my former life, before I was a Christian, before Christ got a hold of me, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with faith and love there in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm the chief. I'm the worst. 
But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me is the worst, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, my former life, I was a blasphemer, I was ignorant, I was opposed to God, I was religious, I was trying to do all these things thinking that this was going to please God, but in fact, I was a violent, angry, persecuting man. This was my life before Christ. Now, your testimony may not be as dramatic as Paul, okay? Hopefully, you weren't killing people and dragging Christians from house to house, but all of us before Christ were living to please ourselves, all of us before Christ were sinners. Now, you may have thought, well, I just grew up as a good kid. I got saved as eight. I, didn't, I wasn't a bank robber. Yes, but you're still a sinner. Or maybe you're a hellion growing up, and you knew that you were a sinner. Either way, you are a sinner. And Martin Luther says people are naturally bent in upon themselves, meaning that most people think that there's nothing wrong with them. I'm okay. I I may not commit major sins. I mean, I'm not a bank robber. I'm not a murderer. I don't smoke, drink, and chew and go with the girls that do, all that kind of stuff. Basically, I'm a good person. And Paul says, I thought I was a good person. I thought I was doing the right thing. But at the core of my being, I was a sinner before I met Jesus. So you need to share with people what your life was like before you were a Christian. Even if you were a good kid, even that religious stuff that you did was not good enough. And we need to show people by our sin that they desperately need a Savior because they are sinners. What was your life like before Christ? You may think, man, I wasn't that bad of a person. You may not have been that bad as far as your actions, but to the core of your being, you were a sinner that was still living for yourself. Now let's continue reading and see what what Paul continues to do. Verse 12, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me. Okay, he's sharing his personal testimony here of what happened. And those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Okay, in verse 14, Jesus says, Why are you kicking against the goads? Now, what does it mean to kick against the goads? It's a metaphor. What's a goad? It's a long stick that you use to hit an animal with. So basically, Jesus is saying to Paul, you're like a stubborn mule. You're like an animal that's not being responded. And so I need to hit you with a two-by-four, Paul, to get your attention. And so that's what Paul says. My life before Christ was one of being ignorant, arrogant, sinful, rebellious. God had to get a hold of me. And that's what he did. He came and he saved me by grace. Now, We talk about our life before Christ. But here's the most important thing that you've got to share. This is number four. You've got to present the gospel. 
of Christ. The gospel of Christ. Now, your testimony is not the gospel. Let's just make that very clear. Your personal testimony is very, very important. It's, it's, it helps people understand where you're coming from. But your personal testimony is not the gospel. It's your story, but it's not the story. Look at what Paul says there in verses 23. The Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What is the gospel? The gospel is the announcement of the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an objective event that happened over 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived a perfect life that none of us could live. He suffered on the cross, the death that we should all have died. He rose again, conquering death and sin, and he's going to come back, and he's the ruling king of kings and lord of lords. The Christ must suffer. So you have not shared the gospel. You've not witnessed. You've not evangelized unless you've told someone. You can tell them all day about your story, about how Jesus saved you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He rose again, and he's king of kings, and he's lord of lords. He must suffer. Now, Jesus even said this back in Luke chapter 24, 40, 60, 47. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Here's the issue. The gospel is truth whether you experience it or not. It, it's an objective fact. Whether you ever got saved the gospel is still the truth of an objective reality that happened over 2,000 years ago. And here's the issue. Please share your testimony. I'm telling you to share your testimony. Share your life before Christ. Share how Jesus saved you. Tell your story, but just understand something. We live in a postmodern relativistic world where everybody has a story and almost all stories are on equal playing field. So you go to a person, you say, you know what, coming to Jesus has given me peace, it's given me happiness, it's given me a great life, it's given me purpose, it's given me meaning. And the Buddhist or the person in yoga or the person that's involved in New Age or the person that listens to Oprah looks at you and says, hey, I've got peace, I've got happiness, I've got purpose in my life. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be telling you what Jesus has done for me. Well, that's great. I'm glad Jesus did that for you, but my belief system has done this for me. So you have two competing testimonies, and so we need to remember something. Your, your testimony is not the gospel. It's important, but it's not the gospel. What does Paul say in Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is... Not your testimony. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So please share your personal testimony. Share your story. Share your life before Christ. Share how Jesus saved you, but realize that if that's all you do and you don't ever get around to the gospel, the real power's in the gospel. The gospel is what God uses to save sinners. So you haven't done the job fully until you've sat down and said to them, listen, you're a sinner in need of a savior Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. You unpack the cross. You unpack the resurrection. You, you, you answer their objections, but you've got to get around to presenting the, the facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's the fifth thing. Our life before we were a Christian, the gospel, but I think it's beneficial to tell about your, your life now. 
What have you experienced in this new life in Christ? What has happened to you as a result of meeting Christ Jesus? And that's what Paul does because he tells this story. If you keep on reading uh, back there in your red letters, in verses 17 and 18, he tells the king, listen, this is what Jesus told me to do. Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That's what has to happen to any of us here if we're ever going to get saved. That's what's happened to you this morning if you've gotten saved. These things have happened to you. First of all, Jesus says to Paul, open blind eyes. Why? People are blind. Lost people are blind to their sin. They're blind to themselves. They are living in darkness. What did Jesus say about lost people? In John 3, 19 through 20, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed and so 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 jesus is saying to paul people are living in blindness their eyes need to be opened if you're a christian here this morning your eyes have been opened to your sin and you've come to faith in christ because you've seen yourself in comparison to christ and you realize you've come up short but jesus also says to paul i want you to turn them from darkness to light Turn them from darkness to light. They've got to get out of the dark and get into the light. They're blinded in the dark. They need to be in the light. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, he tells us what's happened to us as Christians. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, what? Out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thirdly, what does Jesus say? I want you to turn them from the dominion of Satan, the power of Satan, to God. So what are lost people living in? Darkness, blindness, Satan. They need to be released, rescued, eyes open, brought into the kingdom of light, rescued out of the bondage to Satan. And that's what has happened to us. Do you realize? I don't think we as Christians realize this. And it's hard for me to realize because I was saved when I was eight. We were in the bondage of Satan. We were in the clutches of sin. We were helpless to save ourselves. And what has God done? He's rescued us out of that. He's brought us out of that. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us, rescued us. From where? The domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's my new life in Christ. I'm no longer in darkness. I'm no longer in blindness. I'm no longer in bondage to Satan. I've been rescued. I've been freed. I've been given new life. I am a new creation in Christ. My old life is gone. My new life has come in Christ. I am a totally new person, and Christ has done that to me. That's my new life, and it involves repentance. It involves repentance. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says in verse 20, But declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's what this whole thing is. Repentance. Repentance that is demonstrable with with, with concrete evidence. It's one thing to be sorry for your sin. It's maybe even one thing to confess that sin, but repenting means you turn from that sin. You've come to grips in your mind that it's sinful. It's moved into your heart where you feel that it's sinful and you grieve over it, but then you actually have got to turn. 
with concrete, demonstrable evidence. That's why John the Baptist said to those that were coming down to be baptized in Luke chapter 3, 7 through 8, he said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath of God? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How do you know someone's repented? Very easy question. How do you know someone's repented? They no longer do the things they did before. So if you have new life in Christ, you no longer do the things you did before. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you never sin, but it means that God has so changed your heart from the inside out that your affections, your desires, your, your values, everything about you is new. You have new affections, new allegiances. I'm a new creation in Christ. I have repented. I, I'm out of darkness. I'm out of the blinding. I'm out, of, I'm out of the kingdom of Satan. I am now in the kingdom of light and God has changed me from the inside out and so now I have new affections and those new affections demonstrate themselves in the new way that I live. I have new behaviors. I have new values. I have new actions. I have new disciplines. I am a new person. And what's the promise? Paul says there, or Jesus says to Paul there at the end of verse 18, that if this happens, you'll receive forgiveness. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What happens when, when God saves you? He forgives you. He gives you a new life. Now think about what Jesus is asking Paul to do. Paul, I want you to go turn people from darkness. I want you to get people out of Satan's grip. I want you to do all this, this stuff to get people out of bondage. Could Paul do that? Could Paul do that? As great of a missionary as he is, as persuasive as he was, as great of a church planning evangelist he was, could Paul do that? Absolutely not. I cannot get any of you here out of darkness. I cannot get any of you here out of blindness. I can't get any of you here out of bondage. All I can do is say this. The Bible says to repent. But guess what has to happen? God must do a supernatural work in the heart of a sinner to turn them, to convert them. Here's the paradox. (laughs) Jesus says to Paul, I want you to go do this, but you can't do it. I'm going to have to do it. There's one thing you can do. Preach Jesus. And when you preach Jesus, God does a work like he does in creation. What happened in creation? God said what? Let there be light. And what happened? Did light obey God? Is, is, there, is there ever an announcement from God that, that doesn't happen? If God says let there be something, is it going to happen? Hopefully you all say yes, okay? In creation, God spoke light into existence. In your new creation as a Christian, God spoke your salvation into existence and gave you a new life. He said, let there be light in that darkness, in that blindness, and he opened your eyes. Now, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? I'm glad you asked. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-6. through 6. Listen to the parallel passage here. Think about what we've been talking about. Blindness, darkness, being turned from Satan to God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. Even if our gospel's veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the devil, has done what? He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. Didn't we just see that people are in blindness? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So here's the problem. We are in blindness. We are in darkness. The God of this age has kept us from seeing truth. And so what happens? What does Paul do? Verse 5. Well, here's what we do. I can't turn them. I can't change them. I can't create light. But what do I do? We, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. What does Paul say I do? The only thing I can do, I'm going to preach Jesus. I'm going to talk about Jesus. 
I'm going to present the gospel. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And then guess what happens when that happens? When you open your mouth and start telling people about Jesus, what does God do? Well, that's there in verse 6. For God who said, now doesn't this sound like Genesis, let light shine out of darkness. Where's the darkness in our hearts and our minds? God says, let there be light. What happens? He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God comes and invades the heart of a sinner, opens the eyes, turns the light bulb on, changes the heart and says, you're a sinner, you're in blindness, you're in darkness, but I'm giving you new life in Christ. Now repent and believe because of the grace that I've given you to be able to do that. It's a super natural task all we have to do and it's a scary thing but it's a comforting thing we don't have to turn anybody we don't have to convert anybody we don't have to arm twist anybody we simply just have to open our mouths and say look at how beautiful Jesus is and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to come behind us and do the work that he promises to do in the heart of an unregenerate person so so here here's where we've gone so far this morning practically speaking number one God is at work in your life it's no accident that you have the neighbors you have you're in the neighborhood you're in you're at the job that you're in you're on the team that you're in you have a locker next to the person you have a locker when school starts and all that kind of stuff God is in control of that he, he's orchestrating these events in your life to give you divine moments. Number two, you need to be praying for those events, praying for open eyes, praying for opportunities, building relationships. Number three, tell your life before you're a Christian. Tell your life before you're a Christian. Then share the gospel of Christ, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Share that with boldness. And then number four, talk about your new life in Christ. What has Christ done for you? How has he saved you? How is your life different? How is your life new? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're a new creation now. You need to tell people, I'm new. I'm new, and this is what Christ has done to me to make me new. Here's who I am now. This is who I was before. This is what Jesus has done. This is where I am now. Now, here's the, here's the hard part. What happens when you do all that? What happens when you do all that and the person rejects you? or the person laughs at you, the person mocks you, the person doesn't understand, or, or there's, just, there's just apathy. What happens when it's not the response that you want? Here's the sixth thing we need to understand. We need to be ready for various responses to the gospel. We can't control the responses. What we can control is what we say. There's going to be various responses, and we see it right here. We see two responses to Paul. Let's look at it. Let's keep looking. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would, or I pray to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king rose, and the governors, and Bernice, and all those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Felix, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In verse 24, what's the response of Festus? Paul, you're a crazy man. That's where we get the word maniac. It's the Greek word mania. Paul, you're a stark, raven maniac. Now, maybe some people look at you after you tell them the gospel and they think, 
Okay, Sean, you're a weirdo. You're off your rocker. You're wacky. You are nuts. That's one response. You're out of your mind. You're crazy to believe what you believe. You're just stupid. You're weird. Okay, that's one response. Look at the other response. The king, verse 28. The king's like, are you trying to proselytize me? Are you trying to force me to be a Christian? Are you forcing your religion on me, Paul? Do you think you could just come in here and after two minutes try to get me to become a Christian? Are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian in just a short time? It's, it's kind of like the other thing is, don't push your religion on me. Don't force it on me. Don't try to proselytize me. Don't try to convert me. Thank you very much. Those are responses you get. And we need to expect that. Anybody here expect anything less? I mean, look at the world we live in. People are either going to think you're wacky or they're going to think you're pushing your religion on them. And we need to realize something, Christians. This is where I've been struggling this week. People are not the enemy. Satan is. We wrestle with flesh and blood. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Lost people are exactly that. They're lost. They're in bondage. They're prisoners of war, and we can be mad at them. We can look at the media and say, man, that media is crazy. Or we can look at, at all the weird stuff that Hollywood's trying to push. Or we can, we can get all in the brouhaha about the Chick-fil-A thing and all everything that's going on in our world right now. And we can get mad, and we can retreat, and we can get this us-against-them mentality, and we can realize that we're not fighting people. We're against Satan. They're just prisoners of war that need to be released. And you were that way one time, too. So of all people, Christians need to look with compassion on those that are lost and say, my goodness, we've got the answer. It's Christ. You're, in, you're a prisoner of war. You've been blinded by the enemy. You're not my enemy. You are in, you're a prisoner of the enemy. So we need to be real careful, Christians, in how we treat lost people. Because the gospel has the, the, gospel has the power to save them or it will offend them. It's either going to save them or it's going to offend them. You can't control that. You pray, you plead with tears, you love, you encourage. The last thing I want to be known as is an arrogant, know-it-all Christian. Have you met an arrogant, know-it-all Christian? Of all people who've been saved by grace out of the sewer of sin, what more has God done for us that we should be the most compassionate people. doesn't mean we tolerate sin. I'm not saying we tolerate it, because I'm a, that's the next point here. But, but the lost people aren't our enemy. Satan's our enemy. We need to love lost people and realize that they're going to respond in, in various different ways. Here's the last thing, seventhly. We need to have confidence in the gospel. And regardless of what the response is, we're going to need to confidently keep sharing it. Look, look at what Paul does. Did that deter Paul? I mean, think about what Paul's been through so far. What have we seen so far? These past few months in Paul. He's been beaten. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's had death warrants on his head. He's been involved in numerous riots. He's on his third trial. He probably could have said, you know what, Jesus, I give up on this thing. Just let me die. But what does he do? Does he back down with King Agrippa? Notice what he says. Notice what he says in verse 26. He uses a key word that shows up in Acts a lot. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak, what does your Bible say? Boldly. Peresia, the Greek word. Confidently. Boldly. A spirit-empowered ability to stand up and speak and let the words come out and not be afraid. He's got boldness. And notice what he says in verse 22. 
In verse 22, he says, To this day I have, ha- I've, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, testifying both to small and great. I stand here. I take my stand. I'm taking my stand. If this is the last time I ever get to present the gospel, I'm taking my stand. And I'm going to do it with boldness. I'm going to do it with confidence because I know that either people are going to get saved or people are going to get offended. I can't control that. But one thing I am going to do is I'm going to stand here and I'm going to boldly testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here I stand because it's happened to me. I was on the road to Damascus. God saved me out of, out of death. God saved me out of bondage. I know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I know he died on the cross. I know he's changed my life. And I don't care what the world says. It is true. It's happened to me. I'm going to take my stand on it. Regardless of what comes, I'm going to do it with boldness. Even if they have to drag me in front of the top people in the land. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 21, 12 through 15? Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. This is Jesus speaking delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Has Paul experienced that? Yes. Why? Verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. There's going to come a time where you have to make your stand. There's going to come a time when you're going to have to speak boldly. And you need to have it settled beforehand what you're going to say. And even if you don't know what to say in that moment, I'm going to give you words to say in the power of the Holy Spirit. But you're going to have to take your stand, regardless of what comes. I'm going to have confidence in this gospel. I'm going to have confidence in this message. Now again, when Paul does this, the king's annoyed. You're trying to put your religion on me? And Festus thinks he's going out of his mind. You're crazy, Paul. But what's Paul's heartbeat in all of this? What's his heartbeat? What's Paul's main passion in this? I mean, you see the heart of a man that loves Jesus and loves people. Look at verse 29. This is Paul's passion. I I, I mean, think about Paul's passion in the midst of all he's been through. This is what he says to the king. After the king said, "Are are you trying to convert me, Paul? Look at verse 29. Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God. Literally Greek, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as me, except for these chains. What's Paul saying? I could care less, Paul, I could care less, King, what you think of me. I could care less if you think I'm a maniac, I'm out of my mind. I could care less what happens to me, you can kill me. But the one thing that I care the most about is that you become a Christian. That you become like me. That God saves you by grace. That's my heartbeat. I want to see the gospel go so forth in power that everyone that hears me, you king and everyone around me, falls to their faces and becomes Christians because they've been overpowered with the sense of God's majesty. Paul's heartbeat is, I'm standing here in chains, but I want you all to be saved. So let me ask you a question. Is that your heartbeat? Do you truly desire to see people saved? I mean, as Christians, I think we can talk a good talk and play the good game and say, yeah, we want people to be saved, but do we really, number one, believe that God can save sinners, and number two, do we want God to save sinners? Because if we really pray that prayer, that means that God may use situations or may use us in uncomfortable positions to to bring about his accomplished end. Oh, Lord, I want that person to get saved as long as I don't have to be the one to witness to him. Lord, I want to get that person saved as long as I don't have to be in the same situation with them. 
God may be saying, you know what, I want you right in the thick of it, and if you really want people to get saved, it means you may need to step up the plate and open your mouth and love them and share with them and go next door to them and talk to them and care for them and do whatever it takes to get the message to them. And it may mean it's, it's uncomfortable. It may put you out of your comfort zone. But if you truly have the passion that Paul did, that I want everybody to be saved, God may be saying, you know what, I want you to, to step up and, and get out of your comfort zone. Do you fear opening your mouth? I think that's why we fear, right? Why do we fear opening our mouths? What's going to happen next? You got two strange things that happen. What, what if, for some strange reason, God actually saves the person? You got a baby Christian on your hands that you got a disciple. I don't have the time to do that. Well, I didn't think, it, I didn't think God was going to save them. What do I do now with them? Well, I'll dump them off to Pastor Sean to disciple them. That's one problem. I don't want to open my mouth because if somebody gets saved, that means I'm responsible for disciple them. Or I don't want to open my mouth because they may think I'm crazy. Either way, you're at a loss, so you play these mind games like, I'm never going to open my mouth because this, it's a no-win situation. So we come here with fear and trembling, and we don't want to open our mouths. But what did Paul do, and what should we do? We have confidence in the gospel. Do you have confidence that the gospel saves? Do you have confidence in what God has done for you? Has God done a work of grace in your heart? If you're a Christian, he has. Do you have confidence that God can transform you? If he transformed you, he can transform anyone. Do you have confidence, and we looked at last week, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to come and open blind eyes and do that work of conviction? Do you have confidence that God has placed you in the relationships that you're in right now, not on accident, for, for a purpose? Do you have confidence in that? Have confidence in the power of the gospel and have confidence in a sovereign God who can save through the power of the gospel and use you to do it. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. It's a high and holy calling. It's scary. It's fearful. But I want to be like Paul. Here I take my stand. No matter what comes my way, I'm going to open my mouth and boldly tell people about Jesus because I know that there's power in the gospel. They may beat me, they may flog me, they may put me in prison, but I know this. When I get to heaven, I want to hear the words of my Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now I know I can't control anyone's salvation, but the one thing I can control is me opening my mouth. And I need to repent this morning in front of you that I have not done a good job as your pastor in sharing the gospel. I've got lost neighbors like many of you do. I've got lost family members like many of you do. I've got lost friends like many of you do. And I have not been where I need to be in sharing the gospel. So we're on this journey together. Don't think I've arrived. Don't look at me as the poster child for evangelism. We're in this journey together. So I'm saying let's all together have confidence in the power of the gospel. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And as you are sitting there in the quietness of this moment, if you are a, a believer this morning, you've come into this place and you know you have a relationship with Christ, you're a Christian, I want you to think about a person you know that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe a lost uh, family member, friend, coworker. I want you to, to get that person's name and, and their face in your mind, your situation, and I want you just to spend a few moments praying that God would give you opportunities to open your mouth and share the gospel with them. If you're here this morning and you walked in and you just wanted to check out a manual and you had no idea what you were getting into, 
Maybe you were dragged here by a friend or you just felt the compulsion to come here and you know deep in your heart that you haven't had that life-changing experience. You haven't been saved by grace. My prayer for you this morning is that you would repent, turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. That today would be your day of salvation, that you would confess Jesus as Lord. You would believe that he died on the cross and rose again and that you would, that you would come to grips with the fact that you desperately need a Savior and that you're a sinner that, that, that can't save yourself and that you would come to faith in Christ this morning. So I'd ask you to spend a few moments in silent time. In the quietness of this moment, let's see what the Holy Spirit does in working on our hearts and minds to give us confidence in the power of the gospel. Spend a few moments in prayer. We're quiet. Because when we are quiet, we get uncomfortable. We're so busy. We're so frantic. We so much want to do all these things. And Lord, we can even come to a worship service and do all these things and never even connect with you. We can sing. We can pray. We can read. We can hear. We can shake hands. We can fellowship. We can, we can do all the trappings that look like church and yet walk out of this place and never have worshipped you. And that would be sad this morning. So Lord, in the quietness of this moment, if we speak to our hearts that we would worship you, we would obey you. Lord, you'd give us the confidence and the encouragement to go out and, and speak the truth and love. Lord, I, I don't want to minister guilt this morning. We know the power comes from the Holy Spirit. Lord, if there are lost people here this morning, I pray for their salvation. I pray they'd come to faith in Christ. Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes? Do what you did to Paul. Do what you did to all of us. Turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Grant them repentance and faith. Do a work in their heart. Let the light shine so they may see the glory of Christ in the gospel. Fall on their knees and submit themselves to Jesus as king of their lives. Father, we have so far to go in the area of sharing our faith. And we have so many lost people around us that need the gospel. And Lord, so many of us are gripped by fear. We just have to be honest, we're gripped by fear. And we know your word says perfect love casts out fear. And you did not give us a spirit of timidity the spirit of power, love, and self-control. So as we go about our, our week, Lord, and the relationships we have, the circumstances we have, the neighborhoods, the workplaces, wherever we are, Lord, we know that you're behind the scenes working situations out. Would you give us a sensitivity to what the Holy Spirit is doing and then would we pray for opportunities? And Lord, when those opportunities come, would we share our life before Christ? Would we share the gospel and we share our new life in Christ and realize that we may have various responses to that, but that we need to just continue to take our stand and boldly proclaim the gospel regardless of what happens. May we be faithful to that. By your grace alone, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.